Welcome to the Zero Hour by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's guest is Dr. Austin Chang. He holds multiple distinctions. Uh, chief among them, he is the first chief medical social media officer at Jefferson Health in Philadelphia. And he is a triple board certified gastroenterologist with a master's in public health from Harvard and a PhD from Columbia. So he is a smart cookie. Yes. And when we first called him, he actually just finished a procedure and needed a minute before he could talk. Just a minute. That's how amazing he is. Um, so this conversation is very exciting. It's the frontier for medical professionals on social media. He is also the founder of the Association for Healthcare Social Media, uh, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to establishing standards for medical professionals communicating on social media. Um, and given our work around disinformation, um, on social media, I think it's a very, worthy and admirable endeavor um, that he is undertaking to try and help vet uh, medical information and also set standards for how medical information is communicated on social. All right. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation. Hello. Hello, Dr. Chang. This is George with Safeguard Cyber. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? All right. Uh, we also have on the line my uh, co-host, Ashley Stone. Hi there. Hi. Um, so we came across uh, your, um, I guess, your your presence and your work and your practice through an article in CNBC. And I think what intrigued us is we work to protect social media channels for our clients many of whom work in regulated industries like pharmaceuticals. And many of those in life sciences, life sciences have been um, rather reluctant to get on, on social media, whether for fear of compliance violations or the like. So I'm very interested to understand how did you come to the conclusion or the understanding that you wanted to actually actively intertwine your profession as a physician with social media? Yeah, so I think it's important to note that I'm not the first medical professional on social media. Obviously, there have been folks who've been doing this for quite some time now. Um, But how it came to me really was several years ago, I actually spent a couple weeks during my medical training at ABC News um, wanting to learn how the general public receives their medical information. And I wanted to know how primary literature was being vetted by the networks before that information made its way onto the evening news. And in that process, they had been hosting a weekly Twitter chat and many important public figures and thought leaders and um, representatives of important organizations that we all know um, were participating online. And that was when I could really feel that these folks were more accessible than ever and were really being um, a direct um, conduit to the primary information that we all wanted to know about. And um, I then took it upon myself to start using social media in ways that I thought was most productive um, by educating on what I was trained to do uh, about gastroenterology, which is what I was uh, training for at the time, 
as well as um, just participating in various Twitter chats about obesity medicine and about healthcare social media and uh, also live tweeting conferences I was at. And from there, one thing led to another and I began um, sort of representing my field uh, of gastroenterology among the different medical societies as a resource for social media use from health professionals. Um, I tried to create a social media account for the division where I was training at Brigham and Women's. And in that process also did um, a lot of research using Twitter data. And, um, and that's how I sort of began to understand more and more how to use social media productively and developed connections with others who were doing the same thing. And, um, and several of us over the years have really become close friends. And um, that's what ultimately led to some of the opportunities that I'm sure we'll be talking about in a few um, uh, and then where I'm at now. That's very interesting about you kind of arrived at a new media standpoint through uh, your internship work at a old media or, you know, traditional media yeah. organization. Can, I'm just interested that was the ABC News gig part of your public health uh, training or part of your, no. your medical training? It was, um, it was part of my medical training, but it was sort of outside of my traditional medical training. It happened to be during an elective month where I could take time out and do something, um, whatever I chose to do. Some people choose to stay in the hospital and explore other opportunities. Uh, but I had heard about this opportunity early on and was very curious to learn more. Um, and it is very interesting how this, uh, this whole idea came about through that intersection between traditional media versus social media. And I think that uh, traditional media, clearly they've embraced social media as well as an additional way to amplify what they have to share mm -hmm. and what they have to say. Um, and I'm sure in years to come, uh, you know, just as we have so many different types of social media platforms out there, there's just going to be more and more. And so we have to just continue to adapt because I think that's where the disconnect lies is where um, our patients are getting medical information from all sorts of um, sources. And in medicine, at least, we are focused often on medical literature and medical journals, but that's not really where um, yeah, our where patients are getting the average person from. is reading The Lancet or, or exactly. the New England Journal of Medicine. And exactly. I, yeah, and it was interesting that you were saying that ABC News, or you were interested in finding out in, during your time at ABC News, how people were vetting primary source material, like how was that being communicated, uh, which is yeah. a, another interesting problem because we've we've seen this um, a, a lot of misinformation around science and you know this uh, growth in of all things people believing in the Earth is flat. And I think it was recently at the Astrophysical Union this year that they were saying basically there is a void of legitimate science material on social media because we've taken it mm -hmm. for granted that things like gravity and the shape of the earth are known. But in the absence of that information being on those channels, you have had misinformation fill that void. Absolutely. And I think it is, it becomes even more tangible in healthcare because we see how that misinformation sometimes lands patients in the hospital mm -hmm. because they're given all sorts of recommendations or they read about certain things and they, you know, even if it wasn't meant for, um, for their 
individual consumption, sometimes people have uh, very specific medical conditions where those, that type of information, even if it's correct, doesn't necessarily apply to them. Um, so it's, uh, it can be very tricky um, because a lot of people have access to all this information. It's hard to tell what's accurate and what's not. Indeed. Um, so in the evolution of, of your career, you have come to be the chief medical social media officer at Jefferson Health, where you work. Um, mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what that role entails? Uh, insofar as we know, that is kind of the first C-level medical social media position. So we're very intrigued to, to hear how it's been uh, shaped and forged. Yeah. It's a very new position, um, and we're still trying to figure out how best to, you know, utilize my skills. Um, but essentially, the biggest task behind the title is really to help uh, clinicians and other health professionals within our health system engage on social media. And the thought is that, you know, traditionally we have our media relations team and our communications professionals and marketing professionals who are. Um, often tasked with putting out health information or health news from coming out of our institution. But ultimately, if we're trying to reach uh, patients in our community here, um, sometimes, you know, again, to prevent misinformation and also um, kind of frame things in a way that uh, is more um, in line with what we encounter on the doctor-patient relationship side of things. you know, to have someone with that clinical background could be really helpful, um, especially someone who uses social media actively themselves, like me. Um, and so I'm I'm hoping that other people can also do the same thing uh, as I'm doing with regards to using social media um, ourselves and um, talking about what we do, talking about what we were trained to do, and uh, and you know that way we can really disseminate the most accurate information. Um, on the other hand, I'm also tasked with helping craft some of the social media policies here and help out with certain campaigns. So um, it's an evolving role, but uh, but it's really exciting and um, and uh, and yeah, it's been a lot of fun so far. We love to hear about that. So how are you thinking about the evolution of this role? Do you see it becoming a standard position at hospitals? I think that it should be. So I, I really believe that I shouldn't be the only one out there doing this. Um, and I think since I've taken on this role and since it's been publicized, there have been several other people who have come to me looking to do the same thing for their institutions, which is really, really great. Um, I think it's pretty key that the person who takes it on really should be someone who is using social media actively themselves. Uh, and not just with an understanding of what social media is. Um, On the other hand, as I alluded to earlier, um, part of why I've taken on this role is because I've also had experience interacting with some of our medical organizations um, in helping guide social media for them, as well as doing research in social media and having that background as well. So it's not just simply that I use Instagram or Twitter every day. of course, you know, I think that's a really key part of it. So I think that having, and I think we're going to see more and more medical professionals who have similar backgrounds because um, it is becoming a niche research field and it's also becoming more and more um, uh, common to have one's own social media presence. 
Um, and, you know, one thing that I'm working toward as well is trying to see how we can better incentivize social media use, um, social media time spent on social media or contributing to health journalism. Because if we want our thought leaders and our uh, colleagues to be using social media, you know, currently the currency really is uh, either clinical work or academic publications, um, but, you know, not so much lay um lay publications right. or or social media content so yeah, hopefully sort of we can operating, get that operating within the field rather than communicating outside the field to the, to yeah, the general populace yeah exactly and i think yep. it strikes me that this is also uh an inevitable generational wave right as more doctors come into the system they are of a generation that are digital natives they were using social media in high school ostensibly mm-hmm. through college through medical school, just, you know, natively. Um, so it's go- only going to make more sense that I feel like this is a burgeoning field. However, I am yeah, curious I so. to know, I mean, it strikes me that Jefferson Health has been rather progressive on this front. Did do you encounter any resistance? Because, it, you know, hospital systems tend to be a little bit more on the conservative side when it comes to these new channels and, uh, you know, the compliance implications and, and, and data implications. Um, no, I mean, seeing that this position was really created by um, Dr. Clasco, our CEO um, and president of the university, I think that he's been very instrumental in making sure that I'm supported and that others know about my role. Um, it is a work in progress. And so, you know, there definitely are folks out there who are less aware of what social media is about and um, how even their trainees uh, can benefit from it. And I can be that example and say, look, this is how I used it throughout my training. This is how it's benefited my career. This is all, these are all the different, um, you know, perks to being on social media and, and I can be that living example. So um, I think that, you know, for those who have been less receptive, I don't think it's out of, you know, um, sort of believing in traditional methods. I think it's just a lack of understanding. And, um, and I think for the most part, everyone's open to hearing about, um, how it's benefited me and how um, I see this whole kind of um, space moving. And so um, if anything, it's only been positive. Great. So social media is a, a channel in which you can really reach the non-medical professionals uh, at scale, it feels like. And part of that is understanding how social media works so it looks yeah. like you created hashtag verify healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about that hashtag? Yeah, the hashtag really was focused on one um, issue that many of us have been noticing on Instagram particularly. So um, we started noticing that there was this growing trend of misrepresentation where certain individuals were misrepresenting themselves in what they are trained to do and what their credentials are. So, for instance, there were um, some, you know, either naturopathic doctors or chiropractors who were saying that they were physicians, medical physicians. And there were also students who were saying that they were full-fledged physicians or nurses or dentists. And I think that sometimes, um, especially if folks are going to market themselves and brand themselves as a health professional, um, not being fully transparent about their credentials could be potentially really misleading. Um, And so that was really a a campaign to 
um, asks these so quote unquote influencers who have decent sized followings to disclose what their credentials were so that their followers could know exactly what their training was. Um, and also to encourage followers to uh, double and triple check who they were trusting online um, by going to licensure and board certification websites. So, um, so that's really how it started. And it clearly resonated with a lot of people. And uh, that's what then sparked the creation of our new association, the Association for Healthcare Social Media. Yeah, actually, that is a, a perfect segue into our questions about that. I mean, you're clearly a very busy man. Um, could you talk a little bit about that nonprofit and uh, what its goals are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with the that movement, the Verify Healthcare hashtag campaign, um, again, we noticed how, how much it had resonated with a lot of other people and how others were noticing the same trends, but that clearly isn't the only sort of hazard of social media that many of us are aware of and have been noticing, um, whether it's, you know, patient privacy issues and how we preserve that, which I think is often the most commonly um, thought of, um, you know, uh, risk with using social media, but also with the whole influencer um landscape and influencer trend that's hit Instagram in the past several years. I think it used to probably only affect fashion influencers and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, other industries, but with, um, the rise of medical and health professionals who have big followings, it's really become, um, something that we've seen in this community as well. And so, um, those sort of issues on top of many, many others led us to uh, create the Association for Healthcare Social Media, which we feel um, is, well, it is the first uh, society of its sort, but it's meant to be a medical society, just mm -hmm. like any other subspecialty organization. It's not a social group. It's not a get together. It really is meant to be a society to help de uh, develop resources, not just for health professionals, but also for the general public to help guide um, in how to look up, uh, you know, what's accurate information and how to interpret how medical literature is being cited or where to look up board certification and whatnot. Um, is that also, also to de develop like standards of communication, you know, like exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. Those resources I and mean, how to use these, um, social media platforms uh, effectively, so not just responsibly, but also effectively. And yes, defining those best practices um, so that no one is uh, subject to those pitfalls. So ultimately, the organization um, seeks to do all of that. Plus, just like many of the other medical societies, um, partner with academic institutions, medical societies um, to to you know be that resource that others can turn to, and also potentially advocate for um, the on the legislative front for uh, the preserving the integrity of health information online. Yeah, I think we've noticed um, you know a number of FTC cases have been brought forward uh, regarding the lack of disclosure about sponsorship. And that actually started sort of the first big case that I think got of a lot of attention was related to Kim Kardashian and, and diet supplements. But there was an mm -hmm. article in the New York Times in May about 
uh, Juvo, which is a Botox competitor, had hosted yeah. uh, a party in in Cancun with a bunch of plastic surgeon influencers who also did not necessarily disclose when or whether a post was um, sponsored, which is, I think, less murky um, in terms of knowing what should and shouldn't be sponsored. But we did notice that you have included sort of an additional layer of transparency and have articulated when posts aren't sponsored. Um, Do you see a, a role for clearly delineating both types of posts? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is really important because, um, you know, when we're thinking about our own clinical practices in real life, we're obligated to disclose these conflicts of interest and these industry relationships. And um, it's become such a big um, thing over the past several decades that has totally transformed how medicine is practiced and, you know, with the Sunshine Act and everything. So, um, you know, I think that currently it's loosely regulated online, but um, but I think for our patients, they deserve to they deserve to know if there are any sort of conflicts of interest, so they can be best informed on um, what the information the, what the information uh, really is about. Um, so yeah, I think that there are, and I know that there are federal trade commission regulations or recommendations on how to disclose sponsored posts. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's very little uh, actual enforcement. And plus, um, again, with industry relationships, there's pretty much no guidance as to what clinicians should be doing um, online or how to disclose that information properly. Yeah, so in, in your mission to establish these standards through the Association for uh, Healthcare Social Media, have you seen the topic gain greater traction at conferences? Are there now conferences dedicated to medical social media or maybe the association has its own? Um, Have you seen larger industry gatherings um, congregating around this subject? I think so. I think that there has been um, increasing attention to all things social media. Um, Our organization just launched less than two months ago, so it's very, very new. Um, but personally, there have been other medical societies that have approached me to speak at their conferences. Um, I know that certain organizations, one of our sponsoring organizations, the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, um, they recently, uh, their topic of the year is trust um, in uh, health information. And so um, I think that more and more organizations are uh, really picking up on the entire subject. And I think part of it isn't just driven by what's going on in health alone, but also kind of the whole idea of fake news and how that's been a whole issue on on the political front over the past, um, you know, two, three years. Okay. Sounds great. Um, So we talked about a lot of social media, but are there other digital technologies that you use as a communication channel, whether it's Slack with your uh, other colleagues or, or other channels to get in front of the community? Yeah, to get in front of the community, I think I've, I personally haven't used other um, channels quite as much. I have on a daily basis at times use Slack depending on, um, you know, what type of work it is I'm doing. Um, but I certainly have used other digital technologies and apps to help assist in various aspects of my work. You know, clearly right now um, we rely and are uh, asked to use 
the electronic health record. And so that's a big part of, um, um, you know, communicating with other health professionals and, um, and, and to patients as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that we're using all sorts of different digital technologies now, medical calculators and other apps and, um, telemedicine is also, uh, becoming more and more common, at least at Jefferson. It's, uh, um, we're a leader in that, um, in that aspect and, and we're, there's a requirement even for us to use, um, to, to use telemedicine. So, um, I'm excited to see, you know, how communication with, um, my, my colleagues as well as patients has evolved over the past several years. And I think that that is why we need associations like ours to really adapt to the times and help um, define, you know, what's appropriate in, in terms of communication. I think that a lot of, in the past, it used to be um, clearly delineated, you know, do not talk to patients online, leave everything for in-person communication. But if that's not how our patients are communicating and if we're able to, um, you know, convey an important message uh, I think that that's there are ways to do that um, that are safe and responsible, and that can still um, lead to a good outcome. And it's interesting that it's also affecting the medical community, but we see this all the time with large enterprises who are less um, gung ho about new technologies, whether it's because it uh, portends a whole bunch of process development or there are legal implications, but. Um, the larger business reality for many of them is you can keep making arguments as to why you shouldn't be on these channels, but if that's where the customer is, you kind of mm-hmm. really need to meet them where they are, whether it's they're seeking out information or or a particular product. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, you know, even among um, health professionals, how we are thinking about education, I think we've seen a lot of transformation in medical education and the fact that you know, even when I was in medical school 10, 15 years ago, the way our curriculum was run then is very, very different from how it is now. And a lot of it can be done virtually, mm. can be, can, uh, really involves, um, uh, digital elements. Um, and so, you know, I think that also reflects how the times are changing and we just have to be able to evolve, um, with it. Yes. I would be interested to know if, what you are doing now with social media and trying to set new standards begins to echo into the curriculum, let's say two, three, five years from now, in terms of is this part of coursework in terms of communicating yeah. uh, primary source material or, or or knowledge to like a larger audience uh, through social? Yeah, I, I think that it's so important. There are many, many things I think that are not emphasized in medical education that should be or in education in general. I think that, you know, I've always um, talked about how we could always use more education in health policy and health systems in you know, health finance. And we don't get that. We're very much mm-hmm. still focused on, on science and medicine, um, but often fail to see the big picture. Um but I think that even, you know, on top of how to use social media to convey information and communicate with others, you know, there's um, the need to educate uh, these young trainees who are often very much uh, online already 
what the potential risks are in using social media because, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately we are held to a different standard in, in a lot of ways in how we communicate online. And, um, and there are real, very real professional repercussions if, um, if we cross that line. Yes. Yeah. And so we've talked about uh, Verify Healthcare. We've talked about primary source material, all of which is, I think, maybe the larger theme of accuracy. Yeah. Um, we at Safeguard Cyber have put out some research around disinformation as it relates to elections um, and, and foreign influence in elections. Mm. But And we've seen reports also that foreign actors are also using social media to uh, disseminate disinformation around medical issues such as vaccinations. That is part of a larger framework to um, exacerbate divisions in society, uh, vaccinations being just one hot-button issue. Um, so could you talk a little bit about what you see, the impacts of not just medical misinformation, which is like a misunderstanding, uh, kind of like an honest mistake, but yeah. also disinformation actively uh, purporting things that, that are not true. Yeah. I mean, I think that even some of the interactions that health professionals have among between each other online, I think can further erode trust, um, which is already at an all time low in, um, in our profession. Mm -hmm. But in terms of disinformation, I think that there are definitely individuals and, and companies out there that are focused on, um, on you know making money and um, and are driven by those sort of incentives and will latch onto certain topics and um, and and amplify messages that I think are disinformation um, and you know I think that that's the that's all the reason why we need more health professionals who are properly trained out there speaking about what uh, what we do and kind of serve as spokespeople for our specialties. So that the general public can look to us as um, the sources of accurate medical information rather than um, sort of random experts out there who are self-proclaimed and don't have the proper credentials to back it up. Have you seen the impact of either mis- or disinformation cross the line into your real-world practice? Like, have you seen patients who have uh, a misunderstanding of their particular condition or what they think the treatment should be as a result of what they might have seen or cited on social? Oh, absolutely. I think that there are um, so many different fad diets that are being promoted out there that have zero basis, scientific basis. And um, and we definitely see the effects of that. Um, we sometimes see, you know, kind of different products that are being pushed kind of along the same line mm-hmm. um, that people may take for no reason that sometimes in excess um, can not be healthy. I think that especially when supplements aren't regulated by the FDA, um, we don't necessarily know what are what, what's in these supplements and, um, and sometimes they're not uh, entirely safe. Um, and so that's a whole... That those are examples in and of themselves, but also um, kind of along the same lines of misrepresentation. You know, some of these people are um, looking to establish themselves for business reasons um, or otherwise as professionals when they actually aren't to drive business and um, you know um, and drive revenue. And I think that in doing that, um, sometimes they're 
they can sort of harness um, information and that may be appealing but not accurate and not safe. Um, and, and sure, a lot of our patients sometimes will come across this. And fortunately, a lot of patients who ultimately come to see me are a little bit more self-selected and they'll come and see Mm -hmm. me, but they'll also tell me what they're reading online and ask me if this is appropriate before, um, trying it themselves. But, um, but I've certainly seen, uh, patients come into the hospital, come into the emergency room after, um, hearing something that they see on TV, by a self-proclaimed expert no. telling them to stop certain medications and um and you know that's uh that can be really harmful yes I, on a side note i have uh, personal feelings about <laughs> the level of basic biology education like i have some friends who will complain of being sort of tired or they get sick all the time and it doesn't uh-huh. even occur to them that what they're eating might be you know if you eat only four things uh, or only fast food and you don't drink any water all day. You know, it's just like, yeah, just like, let's go back to bio 101 some days is, is how I feel. That's a side note. Um, well, when you're confronting something as uh, large and amorphous as medical misinformation or on the more nefarious side, disinformation, um, what is it that really motivates you whether it keeps you up at night or not, what is the thing that just is um, top of mind for you? Yeah. I mean, I just think that when people don't seek the right um, information or seek the right professionals in getting their care, they're wasting their time and their money. And, um, and it can really drive people down a path where it can lead to a lot of unnecessary testing and procedures and, 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 and so that's, you know, and we see that, um, day in and day out. Um, I think that part of the issue isn't just those who are out there, um, disseminating disinformation. I think part of it is also, and I think that there's more attention to this these days, but training how, um, medical professionals and health professionals communicate. And mm-hmm. in a way, you know, we are so, obsessed with science and, um, and obsessed with, you know, the, the nitty gritty details and data. And I think that's really important for us to understand, but to also be able to effectively distill it and make it digestible, uh, for the general public is equally as important. Um, and not even digestible, but also appealing and engaging. I think that's part of what makes social media challenging is that, you know, just putting facts up onto social media doesn't necessarily get anyone's attention, um, nor does anyone really want to read that for fun. Right. So, <laughs> right. so how does, you know, how does it, it relate to their life? Right. And so I think there have been folks who've been able to do it very effectively through Instagram, where it's mostly a visual platform and package it in a way um, that still engages the reader um, or other platforms like YouTube as well. I think there are several doctors and other health professionals out there who are doing it really well, making it a lot of fun and, um, and building that uh, community where, um, people can look to them and be, uh, engaged and subscribe to anything that they have to say. And, um, I think ultimately, you know, if we talk about celebrities influencing, um, the general public and, um, and promoting their products, I think that, you know, in some ways we have to also harness that same sort of spirit um, in medicine to get our message across. 
Yeah, I think um, it reminds me, I would basically have two kinds of professors that were different kinds of brilliant. And I think this is probably true for most people. You have the professor who's very esteemed and has a lot of publications and is clearly brilliant, but they have a very difficult time pulling that expertise down to the 101 level. You know, mm-hmm. I had this professor who was like, I know you're brilliant, but I have no idea what you're saying because it's all <laughs> theoretical yeah. framework that I haven't yet read, but I need you to assign it to me so <laughs> I do read it. But then you also but then you had the professors who could operate at the highest levels, they led conferences or whatever, but they were so enthused about the topic that they were actually very excited to get in front of a general ed class or a one oh one class and and try and pull in the next generation of scholars in that particular field or not. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, even in my own practice of medicine, sometimes it's all about baby steps and not, sometimes our expectation is that we want to fix everything all at once. Um, But sometimes the little fixes along the way, those baby steps can still have a significant impact. Um, And like you said, some of your friends who might be out there feeling tired because of some of the things they eat, I see patients in my clinic who um, sometimes, you know, with just a simple suggestion, doesn't fix everything, but it can really fix a lot and um, and help improve, you know, their health outcomes over time. So if we can sort of encourage those baby steps one one at a time, we might actually be able to get somewhere rather than trying to just throw uh, the kitchen sink at someone right. all at once. <laughs> right. That's, yeah. that's great. We love that. And we always love to end on a positive note. So what, <laughs> what gives you the most hope? What gives me the most hope? Um, you know, when I see my colleagues uh, come to the same conclusion as me, you know, I'm not alone in, and none of us are really alone in any endeavor. I think that um, it's easy for, for us, especially medicine to, um, be competitive and want to, you know, um, champion our own niche path. But those of us who can identify the power of collaboration, which is really what social media often highlights, because in order for social media to work, we have to be social and we have to interact and engage with one another. And to see um, collaboration really come through and um, and really uh, lead to awesome things like this new association, you know, mind you, this new association where healthcare social media was founded by a group of us who had never met in person before. All of us had met on social media, um, our multi-specialty spread all across the country from the East coast all the way to Hawaii. And, um, for us to be able to come together in a very short amount of time and create a 501c3 nonprofit medical society, I think is, incredible. I don't think it would have been able to be accomplished if the internet didn't exist, Mm -hmm. um, at least in this amount of time. And so to see something like this come together, something productive uh, um, lead to something uh, like this, I think it really gives me hope that, you know, we can harness technology and harness uh, some of the tools that we have um, and, and create something really powerful. Wow. That is hope. Yes. <laughs> um, well, thank you. That's the that's all the time that we have for today. But thank you very much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule um, yes. to to entertain us with these these questions and these these answers. 
Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity and hopefully, um, you know, anyone who's listening out there will uh, be able to gain some perspective on where I'm coming from. Absolutely. Um, so best of luck with the Association for Healthcare for Social Media and um, best of luck also developing the program at Jefferson Health. I really do hope that it uh, continues to spread to other hospitals. Thank you so much. I hope so too. All right. Thanks. Have a good evening. You too. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. That was fantastic. I love to hear that healthcare professionals are stepping up, reaching people where they spend their time on social media and setting the record straight on all things misinformation when it comes to health. Yes, it makes absolute sense that this younger generation of doctors um, naturally are more digitally native and uh, we're already active users of social media, but I'm glad to see that they are embracing it as a legitimate channel to communicate medical news and very into the idea of establishing standards as to how to communicate that. So you can take the same kind of rigor and discipline of a peer-reviewed article, but present it in a way that is natural on social media with the same level of uh, rigor and you know discipline around the discourse. Um, so... In the news uh, this week, two big stories of state-sponsored attacks going after private enterprise. The first is between the U.S. and Iran. As we see the geopolitical conflict amp up, we see an avoidance or a hesitation around uh, conventionally armed conflict, of course. No one wants to, to get into that fight and fire that first bullet. Um, But as is recently the case, when tensions go up, the conflict migrates to cyberspace. And so we have seen um, attacks back and forth between uh, the U.S. and Iran against uh, official government uh, entities, but now we are seeing activity ramp up against private enterprise. Uh, So FireEye has a report out on APT34, which has also been called Greenbug or Oil Rig in the past, and they are targeting private enterprise professionals uh, on LinkedIn, uh, principally because social media is just seen as an easier threat vector. People are more prone to click on things than uh, they would an email. That behavior pattern hasn't been established yet. Um, And they are getting invitations from fake academic researchers who link to sites that then download uh, malware that establishes backdoors um, and, and remote access. Uh, the other one we're seeing is uh, something that has been dubbed DN espionage, which is uh, targeting Lebanon and the United Arab Emirates, uh, thought to be uh, Russian in origin. And they are sending links to uh, malicious sites that pose as legitimate job postings. And naturally, they get people to click on there also through LinkedIn and other social media accounts that they're using to advertise said jobs. Um, But they are using a slightly different attack vector. I think it's in the DNS protocol. Um, Either way, we're seeing this this state-sponsored attack on the channels that people use most, which is social media. Um, But that is all we have for this week. Um, As ever, we would like to thank Matias Cephaletti for our theme music, Abby Bruce for our sound design and production. Um, And until next time, stay safe. This is The Zero Hour signing off.